0: thank you very much gosh for the invitation uh, i would, I I struggle to pinpoint exactly where I am on this complex cartography of labels. And it strikes that we're living in an era where labels and categories are both the norm, as well as the centre from which increasingly the centre of gravity is shifting away. So that's another way of saying, basically, I don't want to pigeonhole myself. But if I am asked to summarise who I am, I'm a political uh, theorist. I'm a geopolitical strategist. And I'm currently in the process of finishing off my default in politics at Oxford, uh, as well as someone who's interested genuinely in the intersection between public policy, questions of normative ethics, and finally the rise of nascent technologies, and of course, all of these forces implications on geopolitics in particular. So that's who I am, and thanks for having me on your podcast.
1: The pleasure is all mine. Um, We're going to dive into everything that you've said but talk to me about some of the institutions that you've helped set up and also your entrepreneurial pursuits.
0: Well, absolutely. Uh, I had the fortune, um, if there's one thing that I must claim to be my so-called crowning achievement, of which I'm proudest really and relish the most uh, going forward, having been involved in its ceiling stages, it's the Oxford Political Review, which I have to be very clear about. It's not a solo effort. It's a publication I co-founded with many uh, many a good friend and a comrade on a, on a way of knowledge inquiry on the on road here. And and the Oxford Political Review is essentially, you know, this publication that's an independently edited, and independently managed entity that aims to bridge the gap between theory and practice, comprising largely Oxford alumni and postgrad and undergrad students. But we have no affiliation uh, specifically with any particular academic institution, which grants us this unique Sort of best of both worlds, you see, that we've got one foot through the Oxford door with all of our editors being from Oxford. And yet, on the other hand, we are also independent from any and all broader institutions, which allows us to have that editorial autonomy and capacity to pursue what we take to be relevant in-depth and erudite inquiries into knowledge uh, issues and topics of interest to a wider audience beyond just the Oxford neighbourhood and community so that's essentially what OPR is about and I'm so so glad that I've been you know fortunate enough to meet these many a learned and wise friends who have helped this publication flourish and rise from just a fledgling you know institution four and a half years ago and morph into what currently is which is a I would say, a team of 30 to 40 highly ambitious, impressive and committed individuals devoted to making academic ideas and quality discourse genuinely accessible for all. So that's essentially the OPR story. And I can also go on to, of course, um, Polemics, which is another initiative I'm very excited about. Uh, It's a platform, a Web3 platform that aims to transform ideas into concrete tokens that one can support, and through expressing one's backing for these ideas that are produced by intellectual leading thinkers around the world, engaging with them across a multitude of dimensions, whether it be in purchasing it and literally providing financial support for the intellectual, with the idea, or engaging in debate and in- interlocution with you know the said intellectual, sparring them on their own turf, or finally the dialogue and the wider communication that this facilitates through the unique proof of support concept or proof of support token that the GERDS uh, platform. These are all ways by which we're trying to, as an initiative, as Project Mary Web3, with a world of speech, debate, and ideas and provide a genuine channel you know, for us to cut through the silo of polarization, to cut through and break down the barriers of echo chambers. And ultimately, employ with free technologies and decentralization, of which I'm sure you're most familiar, given your <laughs> wonderful track record, to do something good for society, to really try and ameliorate the problems of mistrust, of cantankerous, you know, rancorous debate, so to speak, that we hear in the mass media. That's not debate. It's just atrocious debasing of debates. And I know that as someone who's taught debating in public speaking for years, we're not getting the sort of ideal deliberative democracy and communicative dialogue in a world today. So what polemics is trying to do is to say, hey, instead of rewarding you for speaking to your echo chambers, we want to reward you for convincing you the other side, for persuading people to see value in your cause, for expressing and channeling or transforming rather your intellectual support of an idea into actual resources that the said intellectual could use to advance and drive forward their idea. And that's how Polemics, I suppose, was conceived of. And I now serve as editor in chief, and and also previously head of Asia. And um, So I've moved on into a more global post. Uh, that's my entrepreneurial pursuit. The final aspect of my work that I would like to touch briefly upon, and I don't want to hog too much time because I'm conscious of you know of time really, and time is of an essence. Is I'm a geopolitical strategist. And Part of what makes this job so exciting is that I don't need to necessarily work that many number of hours a week, and indeed I I tend not to do that during term time because I've got so much on a plate in Oxford and I teach and do all of that, but in um, wherever it is possible, I spend the remainder of my time looking at tectonics and geopolitical trends and the events unfolding around our world, and I ask three questions. Firstly, what exactly is going on? So the interpretive question and the diagnostic question. Secondly what is likely to happen, the predictive question, for which I don't have a crystal ball, but I certainly hope I can provide some perspicuity and clarity as to you know, gauging the next steps and how markets move, how economies are likely to behave, also how governance, the interactions and frictions between different governments in accordance with geopolitical incentives, how that's going to play out over time. My job really is to dispense advice and you know, uh, outline my broad diagnosis and prognosis as to what's going to happen next, and the final part, on my uh, career and portfolio here is to offer advice, to offer prescriptions, suggestions, recommendations for multinational corporations, for high net worth individuals, for investors, but also more generally speaking for folks who are just trying to, to get some semblance of certainty and clarity. It's very hard to get certainty, but it's less difficult to get clarity. And yet I would note that clarity is important, not just because it allows us to unlock certainty in the long term, but also because in many ways, what we see in a world today is simplistic reductionist, but yet unclear answers. And that's what we have to push back against. You know, Sometimes what's clear. But while we complex, you have clear and complex answers and solutions as opposed to, you know, parsimonious and clear solutions. And between clarity and parsimony, I would always go for clarity because the world is not as simple as people would like it to, to be or as populist politicians would often try and convince us of, you know, the veracity of, right? The simplicity of the world is not a given. And if anything, those who are trying to oversimplify the world down to something that is just a skeleton and a skeletal framework, they are the ones, they're the voices against which we must uh, you know, guard the most, really. So I guess that's uh, a broad summary of the work that I've been doing. And as you can see, I struggle in a multitude of areas. You've got the journalism and the media. You've also got the web three and the technological and digital in that and the impacts of that on speech. And thirdly and finally, last but not least, the geopolitical advisory services, all of which are tied up with, of course, the core bulk of my academic interests, which revolved around, as you guessed it, um, questions of injustice, injustice under colonial regimes, injustice under authoritarian regimes. Now, you're a philosopher, and I'm sure you'd know when it comes to questions of injustice, is the existing literature both moral and political philosophy is quite sparse. So what yes. I'm trying to do here is I'm not just trying to be an entrepreneur in a literal way, Financial business sense of the world or in a geopolitical sense, I'm also trying to be an entrepreneur when it comes to ideas, and through the ideational entrepreneurship that I'm undertaking, provide myself and the world at large with the ammunition resources to unlock more opportunities and possibilities through nascent technologies, through communicative dialogue and platforms, above all, really through pressing. And challenging what we take to be grant- take for granted and take to be conventional wisdom, one step at a time. You know, one step at a time is a motto by which I work. I'm not a sort of hyper idealist of anything. I'm i have often been criticised for being very conservative and risk averse in the way I calibrate my steps. But I suppose that's also how I've managed to I wouldn't say succeed, but certainly I juggle all of these different hats at once so far.
1: Yeah, you've done a remarkable job of uh, one, nurturing your interests, and then actually taking concrete steps to translate those interests into a viable career as an academic, as an entrepreneur, as a thinker. Um, I want to start from the beginning. Uh, How did you get interested in all of this? You're, of course, a Rhodes Scholar, so I imagine you were always a good student. Um, But talk to us about how your interests developed and how those interests started becoming hypotheses and how you, you test those hypotheses and then carved out these very interesting parts
0: that's a great question but if i could challenge you or push back against one sort of undergirding assumption you had there my friend it's that you seem to have this functionalist or rather do i say excessively generous assumption concerning my career thus far that almost a call to each and every step I've undertaken, this, this level of intentionality that, frankly, I wish I'd had <laughs> when I undertook these steps. In other words, it's, it's almost like you know we're listening to Frank Sinatra and we're trying to rationalize my way and to carve out this, this claim that there's a my way and the best way. But unfortunately, or fortunately, thanks to the beauty of, of life and its vicissitudes, I've never really seen my life as one that's charted and mapped out so cautiously. You know, in in a means that is that you could string together using a monolithic narrative or linear narrative. If anything, my life has constituted a large number of of ups and downs, of hiccups, of setbacks, of ebbs and flows, of successes and failures. But then, that's to me that part of what what makes you know life this scintillating and also transformative experience. It is the lack of predictability the capriciousness so, okay maybe not the mercurial nature of it right that makes it so I wouldn't go so far as to say it's capricious because that's probably overstated but to answer your question then on a more grounded level as opposed to like, batting on before so much, you do that i just so want to say back. that that makes
1: yeah. you more interesting and uh, mm-hmm. i ask this of all my guests because i feel that interesting careers are as much a product of experimentation and serendipity and ebbs and flows as you talked about and you I know, like like the making making a fool word, out of S
0: yourself Koreans, you know i like yeah, the S yeah
1: and we've learned learn through the period. process and as a exactly. friend of yours i know some of that so that tell us the tell us the background story
0: exactly now. and before i launch into i just want to say you know Utkash's book right on on essentially this world of side hustles this era of side hustles it Reinforces and also feeds back into a point I've been making all along that we're living in an era where, yes, there's increasing casualization of work, but the flip side to casualization is emancipation, right? And the rise of this slasher economy and also the the lack of, I guess, stability associated with occupations. You can see it as a downside, but you can also spin that and view that and seize upon that as an upside because it grants you more freedoms to choose and more freedoms to maximize and create your time in a manner that generates the most utility for not just others, but also yourself. So yes, this is an era where labor is increasingly precarious, where mechanization, automation, and of course, the proletarianization of labor are very much ubiquitous trends. But what I want to emphasize here is that we can fight back. We can reclaim our agency. And that is through leveraging exactly Utkash's, you know, incredible adages and maxims concerning side hustles and also making yourself useful to more than one party, more than one stakeholder in order to really, you know, seize upon the times are in and turn the uncertainty into certain flexibility. Anyway, that, that's just me being a quasi-life guru, not particularly convincing. Um, but I, I've been reliably informed I'm not a convincing life guru because of my age. And to which I often note that, actually, I think the age of those who point this out, I mean, that's a discrediting factor against them as well, given the, the, the huge volumes of nascent technology. So let's not engage in ages of there because too quark could actually backfire. But anyhow, moving on to, or moving back to the question he asked me, look, I started off being someone who'd always valued hyper perfection. I was a hyper-perfectionist when it came to grades. okay? Sell in exams, smash all the, the courses, get all the ASARs you need in GCSEs and move on to topping out IB, which I did. And yet, there was always this part of myself, really, that from a young age, I'd realised there was more to life. I wanted more in life, at least, but I couldn't quite put a, a, a finger or a word or, or a sense of cognizance to it, right? It was more like, Yes, I know I want more, but what is that more? Right. It's one thing to know what you have is not enough. It's not to know what exactly you need. It's almost like when you finish a two-course meal or three-course meal and you're waiting for the pudding menu and you know you need a pudding, but you don't know which of the puddings you actually fancy and desire. Okay, that's a weird analogy. But basically, you know, my, my moment of awakening really came um as a result of the events unfolding in my city in 2014 when the city at large was thrown into an embroiled in unprecedented political upheaval and turmoil over its trajectory, over its future, and of course its relationship with its own country at large. And all of that, you know, skipping aside all the boring politics and diagnosis stuff, you know, what I came to realise was that there's more to life than just getting good grades and succeeding quite very narrowly defined traditional metrics of success. There's also public service. There's also this giving back to the community of which... You clearly and I clearly identify as a constituent, as a member and as a fellow walker. You know. And at the end of the day, that was also when I, I came to see through my public speaking and debating ventures beforehand that there is a means, there was a juice for all that I cultivated over the years and how I talked, how I thought, and how I interlocuted with others. And that was to contribute towards a better, more accurate and pragmatic understanding of politics in my home city. My home, Hong Kong. And from then on, of course, you know, that interest in public service and interacting with the complex visibility constraints and navigating that quagmire that, that was a modus operandi that I you know, tried to and, and really did seek to harness over the years in Hong Kong. But then beyond that, I branched off into looking at other countries, other societies, other peoples that each had their own stories to tell their own lived experiences and their own bottlenecks and constraints when it comes to politics and economics and geopolitics at large. And that's what piqued my interest in A, Chinese politics at large, you know, trying to understand what's going on in my country and B, you know, global geopolitics, right, and making sense of, you know, competitions between countries, between geopolitical interests, between Ideologies. Is it actually the case that we are living in an era where authoritarianism is experiencing a showdown with democracy? Is this an era where we've reached the end of history, per Fukuyama, or pardon, per early Fukuyama? because this change his mind since? Yeah. Well, are we instead living in, in an age where, because of the increasing pluralization and diversification of power orders and centers in the world, we must necessarily come to grapple with, you know, lack of consensus? Conflicting and divergent preferences, in ideas, countries that don't get along, geopolitical tensions, if not indeed downright warfare. So my interest in these topics, I'd say, and you know, now that I'm looking back at it, you know in this almost sort of and uh, narrativization or reconstruction of my own uh, life, right? Uh, thus far, thus far, it's almost like, I, I want to see and I want to reach for the stars when it comes to the aspirational ideals, but also grapple with and ensure that we can implement these ideals in real life. And because of my interest in that and preoccupation with that in a personal setting, quay my own home, I then branched off into trying to do the same to make sense of the gap between the ideal and the non-ideal, the normative and the empirical, and finally, you know, the the monolithic assertions we often hear broadcast in superficial analyses, and the the complex pluralism exhibited by the patterns and the contours of reality in which we were populated and situated, that's what got me thinking about Chinese politics, international relations, questions of colonialism and post-colonial justice, authoritarianism and what it means to truly reform and take down even authoritarianism, so it's not it's not so much a sort of premeditated linear narrative like I've got a plan I'm gonna execute it you know I'm a C two you know, it's fruition and more I suppose intuitively subconsciously there's always that always been these impulses driving and propelling me forward and now to look back at it maybe thanks to your question yeah I, I I'm beginning to see some sense it's almost like when you take you know, enough number of a steps back from painting when you're far enough. You know, between you and the painting, there's enough distance, that's when you start seeing the painting for what it is, as opposed to merely a part of what it is, right? It's a classic blind man and it, blind men with the elephant hypothesis. You know, We'll try our very best to, to feel and touch the elephant. Very often, we only end with one part of the elephant. But when you take a step back, okay, maybe not in the case of a blind man or blind man, but when you take a step back, and I, I guess you can use ChatGPD to scan the elephant or something, um, then you'd be able to see the elephant in its hole. And that's also how, you know, I think autobiographies, the best bio- autobiographies are written. They're not written as justifications. They're not written as, you know, in a selective manner to cherry pick, but instead written in an organic manner of self-discovery and also gradual exposition or exposition via revelation, self-revelation, yeah. So those are the best autobiographies in my mind. Anyhow, I digress. Apologies.
1: Thank you for uh, reflecting on this uh, tricky question. I think your response would be very helpful to people in the liberal arts, but also entrepreneurs, because you're straddling both parts. And uh, the biggest insight for me was that you figure out what you want to do with your life progressively. You have to nurture your interests and be really objective about where that's guiding you. And once you understand the problems that interest you, you've got to start connecting the dots and time helps, perspective helps. And I feel that Brian is somebody who's done quite well at uh, almost everything that he's tried at and failed at many things. This would be, you know, an important uh, piece to keep in mind. So now you've developed interests, you've started connecting the dots. Uh, Tell us a bit about, uh, you know, the new world order that's uh, emerging right now. And how do you, as you know, a, a student of history, politics, philosophy, how are you seeing it? What does that mean to you?
0: Thank you very, very much, Sam. That's, that's a huge question. You know, And whenever I'm asked to speak of the world order, the way I would like to, to characterize or rather preface my answer is to flag that throughout human history, the world order has never been a static entity. It's dynamically evolved. And it's dynamically involved in three senses. The first being essentially the number of centers of power, okay? You've got unipolar worlds, bipolar worlds, uh, multipolar worlds, and also G0 worlds, right? And these are all possible manifestations. G0, by the way, is an Ian Bremmer uh, coined phrase, I believe, as far as I'm aware. And there's no set or no particular reason to think that any of these modus operandi or vivendi, really, is the best means, the only means, or the, the end to which, or towards which history advances and marches. The second question, of course, is who, right? So you, you had the Greek Empire, the Hellenic Empire, the ancient Egyptian civilizations, okay, in the Levant, and also North Africa, the Incas, the Aztecs, but in China, right, this, this, this dynasty, the civilization, the Chinese civilization, which is often, by the way, taken and co-opted by politicians these days to justify this view that China somehow is a historically contiguous entity that lasts for, what, 4,000 years? I don't buy that argument, by the way. I think there have been many disparate Chinese, disjointed members of China, you know, constituents within China, or CAFE, or whatever name we could coin for it and it's impossible to track down and pin down exactly this continuous and uninterrupted flow of the Chinese civilizational logic. But, but that's an aside. it's Throughout history, we've seen different identities to these different poles, and that's part of the beauty of history. It is eclecticity and unpredictability. And of course, of course, and this ties me on to the final point, of course, one could say, okay, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it rhymes. Right? I don't know who said it. I forgot who said it, but... It might also just Mark Twain, I believe. Mark Twain said it. I suspect Mark Twain didn't actually say it. It's a it, case, <laughs> random quotations that like yeah. misattributed deliberately malattributed. But anyway, I, you know when we think about history and the patterns of history, the third question I always ask is, what are the events okay by which history changes and shifts? And Yin characterize these events in a form of critical junctures. Yeah, so hean break down, in theory, for one view, history into a series of basically contiguous flows interrupted by punctuated critical junctures. Or you could argue that history is merely an aggregation and conglomeration of lots of forces in this chaotic and also stochastic manner. Okay, again, it's unclear if this force wins out, right? The individual winning over the societal the collective winning over the individualistic, who is to say that one would always win over the other? There's no set hard and fast rule and you know? any important you know, role of chance can never be, can never be overstated. Okay? So that's one element, I suppose, of the third question. But the other dimension, the other way of approaching the third question is to say, well, you can look at history through lenses of class, resources, idea, ideas, cultural capital, religion. Right? These are all different you know, paradigms that are individually valid as ways in allowing us to interpret history. All of this is to say that when I ask these three questions, I'm not just trying to, you know, uh, confuddle you, right, or to overcomplicate questions. But instead, I think it's imperative to ask: What exactly do we mean? And are we trying to say here by changing world order? You know, for instance, right? We now have a newcomer joining us called Raghav Sharma, and it's a bit like, you know, my surprise is a bit like America's surprise towards China's <laughs> rapid rise. Or alternatively, Britain at America's rapid rise post the, the war of independence, right? Ragav, sorry for comparing you to China. If you take offense at that, well, I'm sorry. If you don't take offense at that, then you're a good lad. Okay, so what I'm trying to highlight here is that history is indeed a conjoinment of forces, of actors and of arrangements between actors. And the new world order we live in today, as I see it, is an increasingly bifurcated world, of global bipolarity coupled with regional multipolarity. And yet there's also a high degree of both literal overlap and also convergence in interest interactions, individuals and resources. And by that underlying that, you can then highlight economic, financial, and all these different types of resources there. that there is an, a zone of convergence and there's a di- multiple dimensions of interest preference and also interaction convergence. And yet, at the end of the day, we are shifting towards a more bipolar world than at least 30 years ago or 20 years ago. And the forces that contribute towards that are multiple. Okay? So the reason why we're seeing you know, is this, this Western sphere and then also this cynic and Russian sphere, and then finally, of course, non-aligned players, right? or players that claim to be non-aligned but are actually forced to take sides. So the reason why we're seeing this, new world order emerge from the ashes of the old are i would say um the, 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 there's probably five different explanations really for the new world order uh, the first being of course this this rising and growing inequality and divide between the havers and have not and that applies not just to the west right you know we, we often hear these convenient narratives that say oh the west is very unequal capitalism has fallen capitalism has failed. but you look at inequality in africa it's and then also Latin America and countries in the global south are also enduring their own gilded ages where the rapid developmental pushes led by the and spearheaded by a very select crop of minority elites at the very top have not led to the percolation of dividends and accruing of these dividends to people on the ground at the bottom. Okay, so you're also seeing that one percent or 0.5 percent versus 99.95 cut and divide widening in vast rates of developing countries in China, right. Reform and opening up did miracles for the country. It salvaged and rescued from the brink of utter economic failure and collapse. And yet it also resulted in substantial inequalities, where officials and then later on private entrepreneurs, tycoons, property developers, amassed vast weights of wealth and where the lower middle class and the working class struggled. And that's also why President Xi Jinping, for instance, said and made common prosperity a core part of his governing mandate in a second term in office, like rightly or wrong. This is the stated intent and a mission, and this reflects a broader underlying problem that is clear in China. Inequality is no better in Southeast Asia, where despite the affluence of proof from resource, um, exploitation and sales, as well as, of course, uh, cheap manufacturing, especially in the aftermath of rising labor costs in China, All of these are forces that have indeed created a middle class, a burgeoning middle class in Southeast Asia, and yet that has not resolved the underlying problems of distributive inequalities and inequities within the political systems, even though you have nominally and substantively even democratic structures in Southeast Asia, many of these countries are also dealing with rampant and radical inequalities of their own. So the first force that's contributed towards this new world order of cash, in my view, is indeed the widening divide between have and have not, which temporarily, you know, was was ameliorated somewhat, you know, and after the local maximum and peak in 2013, 2014. So there was declining global inequality for around five years to six years or so. But then, you know what happened, right? You know, the Sino American trade war started, roughly 2018 terrible in terms of supply side and cost push inflation for some countries uh, pretty harmless and in fact benign for other countries that benefited from the redirected trade from their area. but then it was really in late 2019 early 2020 that the world was plunged into chaos COVID. and this brings me on to the second force really the second force exacerbated pre-existing inequalities eg for this one but it also you know meant and this second force being of course pandemics right? COVID specifically. It also meant that there was an acute and very pressing impetus for action on the part of governments to do three things. One, securitize, right? Securitize the supply of poor vital medical resources and supplies, aside from China and America, the few countries that actually leverage medical aid and resources to export and to I guess promote their own diplomatic objectives. A vast number of countries genuinely doubled down upon in the first year and year and a half of the pandemic, upon ensuring that there would be enough domestic supplies of medical support and medical aid for their own citizens. So the securitization of essential resources, which led to down the line, this, this awakening to the need of or this reflection upon, you know, the security of supply chains at large, right, of strategic industries, of goods that are vital to the maintenance of society at large, not just medical, but also electricity, also water, okay? And I'll get on to food security and water security in just a second, because that probably belongs to point number three. Anyway, I'll cast that aside for now. So the first effect of the pandemic, the securitization of essential resources and also doubling down upon thinking about me, me as a country, me as an individual, me as you know a government responsible for my people as opposed to the whole world's people at large. The second consequence of, of the pandemic, Is that it most certainly created further room for mistrust and skepticism between leading powers, right? But China framed this, especially through state propaganda, this pandemic as the consequence of uh, Western laboratories, and where the same conspiracy theories, the same level of, of unverified and mind numbing, impetuous subscription to these conspiratorial theories, was replicated in America. And worse yet, this pandemic brought out the worst in, in many parts of the, the world, right, where persons of colour, especially East Asians or individuals that resemble East Asians, have been targeted, have been centred and deemed the other, and with the otherness all the more particularised, previously later now manifest, okay, otherness. Then this is a consequence again of this this rising skepticism and cynicism that we see between countries and between peoples and what's really saddening here is that whilst we could have previously said prior to 2019 at least Sino american tensions were largely a matter between politicians these days we can't say the same we've seen a spillover of these tensions into not just technology or medicine or public health or you know these areas of economic and financial interactions but also into civil society interactions and how academic scholars practitioners theorists writers from both sides of the pacific are engaging with one another so that's the second consequence in my view, okay of the pandemic this exacerbation of a pre-existing geopolitical fault the final consequence of the events there. And this is also where the glimmer of hope arises, quake, you know, the engine of the New World War. Because I suppose there's an awakening amongst many smaller and medium countries around the world that they can't lean on and rely upon purely big countries to provide cover for them. Asian solidarity and unity has improved as a result of the, the resource run and shortages induced by the pandemic. The EU has become more united, okay, thanks to recognition that, in fact, the redistributive mechanism where the wealthiest and the most well-off countries cover for and support and lend a helping hand to those that are in need and deprived at times of crises. This is not just a moral imperative, but it's also in the long run beneficial to all countries involved, because when you contain a pandemic in one country, you also contribute towards containing a pandemic within the region at large and within that block at large. So these are the three consequences of the pandemic, and that's the second driving force behind the new world order. So just to recap, we've talked about inequalities and the populism that's resulted in. We've talked about the pandemic as this sort of black swan. And I suppose you'd almost say it's a Dragon King event, right? We're just uh, quoting here Didier. Nonetta, who coined that phrase concerning dragon kings, as I've been reminded recently on my LinkedIn. You know, this is these are both in key events uh, defining the 2020s. But the final thoughts I want to highlight before I let you resume your wonderful hosting and moderation is this: for the 30 years after the Cold War, history hadn't ended. But at least for the developed world, my thesis is that geopolitical contention and ideologically fueled conflicts with a major rival had subsided. Okay, So there was no USSR. That's gone. And yes, you had, of course, uh, al-Qaeda terrorists and ISIS after that. But at the end of the day, radical Islam, or rather, extremist Islam is not representative, of course, of Islam at large. So this whole civilizational hypothesis or hypothesis of of civilization that Huntington had concerning you know, the Islamic civilization versus the Western civilization, I don't personally subscribe to this as being applause towards nation for terrorism because to me, you know, terrorism reflected a more fundamentalist, narrowly defined, and also bigoted ideology of political violence that exploited the name and shell of religion to carry their own end goals. And at the end of the day, the developed world, Quader West hadn't really met someone or an existential rival and competitor who could potentially offer an alternative ideology that resonated with enough people, okay, to take on its stronghold and chokehold over the world up until, okay, up until the past few years. And rightly or wrongly, we've seen the emergence of over the past few years precisely that the geopolitical rivalries have once again returned. Whether it be, you know, Russia, which has waged an illegal, unlawful, and immoral, in my opinion, war against an independent sovereign state Ukraine, or the rise of India, as a country that's open to working with the West, is clearly emphasising it is a part of the West in many ways when it comes to economic and also strategic interests, and yet has its own cultural and religious norms and is still indicated with Russia as we speak. In fact, I think it bought an import of 32 times more oil this year as compared with last year. Sorry, last year as compared with the year before. Sorry. Or indeed China, right? Where many in the West, um, they could be right, could be wrong, see China as a fundamental challenge to the West-led order. And, and in my opinion, China could well be, could well be, China is not necessarily one, but it could well be a challenger and a most serious contending challenger to the West-led order, just as Japan was in a run-up to the 1980s, right, as a core technological competitor and rival. In fact, Japan was, if anything, way more ahead of China comparably in the in this sort of curve, so to speak, of competition with more advanced technology relative to the West at the point of the 1980s or mid-1980s, uh, closing or it was capable of closing the economic gap far more quickly than China back then in the 1980s. And above all, of course, right, the Japanese people were in many ways as impressive as right, the Chinese people, uh, the Japanese people were in many ways as impressive as the Chinese people as we see today. So, all of this is to say that the third force, as I see it, is the rise of geopolitical contenders and rivalries through the global norm. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not imposing my value judgment here, So, I wouldn't say, oh, this is great. It's amazing that we have alternative systems. Nor am I saying that, oh, this is awful because the West should leave. Instead, I'm merely stating the obvious that this is an empirical fact and we have to grapple with it. right? Rightly or wrongly, this has produced. Direct geopolitical tensions and conflict between two major powers already, okay. Uh, well, one major power and one uh, m- middle power that's backed by a very large supranational alliance. I thought about the war in Ukraine, okay. But it's also produced trade wars and financial warfare and rivalry between Beijing and Washington, and that's been ongoing for six years. So l- these are the three forces that have culminated at this broadly bipolar and bifurcated. But at the end of the day, a more regionally diversified and decentralised world order that we see today. And yet, I remain cautiously optimistic that, in face of global existential threats and challenges, we have to cooperate. And politicians, or at least I hope enough politicians, are cognizant of that going forward into the future. Which is why, you know, for for all intents and purposes, let's hope. That the tethers of cooperation and the zones of the limited zones of convergence and alignment would remain intact, despite the onslaught of all of these other treacherous calamities and conditions. I'm aware I am, that I just gave a 15-minute rant there, so I'm sorry. If it's
1: not true. a rant at all. I think uh, these <laughs> are three uh, grounded mental models that will help our listeners understand your perspective on the world order. Uh, I'm conscious of time, uh, but I do want to cover a few more questions before I let you go. Uh, the uh, first is reflection the technology in the world order. As somebody who runs a, or helps run a Web3 enabled debating platform, teaches debating at Oxford and Eton and places like that, uh, are you seeing something on the ground among your students, among your peers, um, where you feel the technology and both? these communities that are getting formed uh, with the help of technology are changing the way we think about the new world order, how we perceive um, aggression by one country or economic uh, fallout of another and so forth.
0: So to answer that question, I'm mean, going to do the very unconventional thing of starting with you know, just an incidental observation about what's going on right now. As we speak right now, I think it's just recently wrapped up, We've seen the TikTok hearings, okay, in the US okay. Congress, where to see it was, was basically representative TikTok was getting, grilled, was okay. getting grilled by a, a committee that had made up their minds before going into the hearing. I mean, it was all just lots of grandstanding. I think this, the, the representative from TikTok was grandstanding, the congressmen were grandstanding, congresswomen were grandstanding. It's all good, it's all performative. And, and in many ways, you know what? TikTok is also performative. We are living in an era of what Roland Barthes terms, you know, this fetishization of the spectacle. I'm just paraphrasing here, right? This fetishization of the moment, the spectacle of arousal, where our attention as citizens, but also as consumers, and the lines are increasingly blurred there, as citizen consumers or consumerist citizens, our attention spans are closing in and are narrowing and are more compressed. Our ability to respond to profound and meaningful dialogue conversations, or alternatively very long messages like the pieces I write, or the things I say, or this conversation here, are increasingly constricted by A, the acceleration of modernity, B, the compression of our subjective sensations of time as a result of modern technology. So this is what Hartmut Rosa terms or explores in his theory of social acceleration, right? But also see the priming on our part, or the priming by surveillance technology and surveillance capitalism at large, to encourage us to, to to reward us really for performing actions that are so mindless and yet come across as so meaningful at the same time, like clicking a button to express that we like something, like swiping left or right on Tinder or Grinder, like going on TikTok and reacting and imitating and lip-syncing. I mean, these are all, in many ways, vacuous gestures, or could have been vacuous gestures 30 years ago, right? You go (laughs) to someone who's never experienced Facebook before and say, hey, if you click this button, that means you really like this thing. He's like, what? What are you talking about, right? And yet, all of these trivial gestures have been bestowed meaning by the contemporary era that we inhabit. Why? Because, and this is my hypothesis, this is an era where the signifiers chase Okay, the signifiers chase what's being signified. The symbols have increasingly come to substitute and replace the actual reality. We live in a hyper-reality where meaningless and vacuous acts like poking a screen and moving my fingers on a screen left or right, or expressing this like, haha. By the way, uh, I don't think we ever ha-ha react to something. It's just haha. As almost like this, this tokenistic indication of humor or that you're entertaining someone for that ostensible humor. All of these vacuous and meaningless gestures are suddenly in granted meaning. And yet such meaning is fleeting because it's built upon, you know, the recognition and acknowledgement of others within your community. That to me is what underpins as an ethos modern technology. Okay. It is this constant, insatiable thirst for others' interactions, participation, and recognition. And yet the fundamentally egocentric and egotistical drive that motivates that when you put these two forces together that is the the era of social media so the reason why I began with the TikTok hearings is A, I wanted to take a diss actually on, on the Congress, yes I do think there are problems with the way the hearings are being conducted but I also think that the underlying problems are much wider than just TikTok or no TikTok, it's the way we consume media and consume involuntarily, subconsciously information then turn comes to shape our preferences, behavioral patterns, and actions, and gestures, and you know what? Beliefs, all right? So with that prelude set aside, there are three particular ways in which I see technology as intersecting this new era of communicative uh, interactions and theories of communication. The first, of course, is news, right? Where historically, news had always been something that was curated, carefully prepared, and disseminated by very controlled, very control-driven and top-down outlets, so local presses and then national presses and then international and well-reputed press. So that had been the primary modus operandi in media via which or through which news had been disseminated up until you know, the 1970s, 1980s, when it ends, of course, the advent of 20-hour television and the 24-hour television. But what uniquely characterized as commonalities, both sets of media channels, was that there was some degree of centralization and clear gatekeeping. Editors wouldn't let you post random things or write random things and get it published, even if you're Boris Johnson or newspapers. Okay, maybe if you're Boris Johnson, you were given free pass. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Boris, or Alexander. And yet, this gatekeeping and this tendency on the part of this more experienced and more well trained journalists who to help filter out misinformation, wrong information. A lot of this started breaking down around the time when social media first um, rose and cultivated a degree of momentum, right? And gravitas as this alternative source of news. And for the first time in human history, social media presented this unique coagulation and enjoyment of a vast dissemination and spread, okay? B, substantively you know, robust and, and rich information being communicated across the media because it's uh, 3D, it's 4D, it's visual, it's everything, right? It's everything everywhere all at once, literally. And thirdly, it's the high degree of synchronicity and simultaneity. You could be scrolling on your phone right now and see something that's happening in Sudan, literally, as we speak. That's never been possible prior to social media. You could lean into it phone sure, in the twenty-four our television, Yeah, but the 24-hour television wouldn't have the same level of mass density of information, and above all, it wouldn't have the fourth defining feature of the social media age of information dissemination, which is the lack of gatekeeping. Social media companies chase profits. They want to maximise the number of users and the volume of time they spend on the planet. Gatekeeping is inimical, at least in the sort of pre cambridge Analytica era and pre-Shazana Zuboff era. It's inevitable to corporate interests on a part of Facebook, uh, uh, Twitter, Google and all these other big tech companies. So the first force I want to hi- highlight here really is that our ability to sift truth or seek truth from facts, to paraphrase a, a, a sort of a, a slogan, is indeed, you know, hampered by the, the times that we're in and also the displacing features that put us on a slippery slope. We are constantly trying to maintain our balance and keep our balance against the slippage of informational control and gatekeeping, and also, at the end of the day, the shifting sands of truth. That's force number one. Second force. Technology has also bred this, this inherent dependence that we have upon it, right? The reason why I'm worried about AI and the rise of it is threefold. The first is, of course, the relatively distant and yet hugely potentially detrimental possibility of AGI. The second is, you know, the inequalities and inequities and in access to technology, right, the classic have and have nots and so forth. But the third and arguably most primitive and primordial of fears and downsides of technology's advent is our potential of becoming too dependent upon it, upon AI, upon algorithms, upon data, upon laptops, right, upon phones, why do we like watching celeb- I'm a Celebrity get me out of here so much? Not just because it's Matt Hancock, but it's instead because we all, deep down, in my view, right, I have a theory here, we all crave to see what would a world without the sort of, you know, and the attractions of modernity look like? What would that world look like and how can we make sense of it? Why do we watch Man vs. Wild, for instance, right? Why do we enjoy, you know, a Triangle of Sadness, especially? The, 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 okay spoilers alert but the, the second or the third 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 again okay, the final third of the movie so much because we want to see what would happen if we were put once again in conditions where there's no technology and I suspect I suspect as many of these works would suggest as well like cast away you know that the results would be pretty grim some of us might adapt some of us could adjust but most of us would struggle we struggle in a world without technology and communicative technology. So dependence is another trend I'm, I'm, I'm hugely worried. And I've been seeing this in my students as well, right? Where there's a lot of leaning into, oh, I'm going to use Grammarly to check my grammar. It doesn't work. I'm going to use ChatGPT to help me find my answers. I mean, good luck with that. Thank you very much for reading my day. Um, I'm going to use, you know, Facebook during class, right? <laughs> dependence is a real and dangerous phenomenon that we have to conquer. And I'm no prude. I'm not ludite. I'm, I'm not saying that we ought to do away you know, with ChatGBT or other forms of AIR altogether. Of course, inevitably, right? the more you crack down upon it, the more people will use it, the harder it is to indeed enforce it. So I'm not a, a fan of saying, let's not have GPT in the classroom. But what I am saying is we've got to ask ourselves, yeah, beyond a certain point, why and how have we become so dependent upon technologies, all kinds of technologies? And this brings me to the final point here. Technology is, it's not just a tool, nor is it just an ethos of philosophy, very high sounding. To me, it's a mindset. The definition of technology, technological modernization is it's a mindset process, it's a mindset shift. It's not just about the means and the instruments that we, we all control over. It's instead of how we see the world around us. And there's, there's a few better examples than Pokemon Go in my in, in illustrating that, right? Prior to Pokemon Go, you'd go to a temple and think, oh, it's a temple. Great. Since the introduction of Pokemon Go, we've seen, I've seen at least, 13, 14-year-olds flock to temples. Not to pray. <laughs> it's instead because they want to catch that bloody Garados. Alternatively, that that, I don't know, that five-star boss Pokemon, you know, a Grodon, right? And I know this sounds a bit lame, but it's true. Augmented reality augments reality by not displacing reality, but by adding a new additional layers to reality. And what I'd like you guys as audience members to think of, you know, what I'm saying here uh, and to unpack this is see the world around you as basically subtle forms of Pokemon Go, right? Take the life of a social media influencer. When they travel around the city that they're visiting, not just These scenic spots they're going to, uh, they they admire the catacombs or they worship the Leloux, right? Or the Haradines and Jaleares. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. But another way of framing it is they're looking for places where they can snap selfies, you know, with a phone. Selfie culture, put it on Instagram, sharing culture, right? Commercializing, commercialization of privacy culture or a culture that fetishizes the commercialization and exporting from one's private life, the blurring of the public-private lines. All of this is to say that you know, we, we are increasingly living in an era where the mindset shifts brought about by our access to technologies are not fully understood by ourselves and yet so inculcated and deeply ingrained that we've, been, we've become the prisoners okay, of technology. Not Literally, right? Not in a black mirror sense, but in the terms of the mindset. That when we wake up, the first thing we do is what is not open our eyes because we reach our phones and say, oh, I'm gonna check my messenger. Or what do the lads, what do folks use is it? Snapchat, right? They with Snapchat. I don't use Snapchat for disclosure. That's a mindset shift. And that's also what I'm probably noticing in Gen Z folks, but also the alpha generation after them. And it was only when I realized they're two generations after me, that's when I realize I'm actually quite old. The moment of epiphany struck struck me when I came to see myself and recognized that I am not indeed a part of Gen Z, nor am I a part of uh, alpha generation, but part of the the, the generation that precedes millennials. So, what can I say?
1: (laughs) We get there. Uh, This is fascinating, Uh, uh, Brian. Tell me a bit about your uh, defill at Oxford. How did Hmm. you decide your question? What was the process like? and where are you in your journey right now? What are some of the conclusions? And through well, this uh, uh, yeah. through this question, I want to basically help our listeners understand what does doing a PhD actually mean? What kind of rigor does it entail? What kind of changes and challenges uh, that uh, that people go through? And uh, what does the end result look like? Because I know that the focus of your deeper, I think our audience members would enjoy it very much.
0: Absolutely. Well, look, I'm interested in questions of basically what do citizens owe in relation to one another, but also at large, and when it comes to repairing the for the injustices perpetrated by the states. I'm looking specifically at the context of authoritarian regimes, okay? So that's essentially the thesis topic. The reason why I arrived at this topic is, uh, the reasons really are threefold. The first is... We live in an era where authoritarianism is, according to some, on the rise; according to others, persisting, and according to some, others still enduring. Like it or not, authoritarianism is real. It's a powerful phenomenon. We have to deal with it, right? We can't just say, "Oh, well, you know, let's yeah, just wish it away" or tell We love authoritarianism. I mean, one way or that, you like it, you don't like it, you still have to discover and unpack more about authoritarian regimes than there really is. And authoritarian regimes are heterogeneous. They're varied. There's some very competent. Uh, authoritarian states, so some also deeply, deeply perverse authoritarian states have exported war and military aggression abroad, we have got it engaged in the full spectrum. And the second reason is that you know, most of Anglo-American political theory, at least over the past 30 to 40 years, had focused largely on so-called ideal conditions, and more specifically, idealized conditions that assume that the state they're operating in, or that theorists are theorizing about, are liberal democratic states, okay? Even John Rawls, who was very ambitious, even did very ambitious John in Law of Peoples only, you know, said, said he wanted to deal with exclusively well-ordered peoples, okay? So in other words, uh, societies with broadly in, 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 intact and functional conceptions of justice and also sufficient stability as to render talk of justice actually a publicly valued exercise. I can think of many a country where that is not the case. I can think of many a country where you don't have well-ordered society per the John Rawls definition. So that's the second point. I want to expand, okay? I want to expand our understanding, conceptions of, you know, justice, and also theorization about justice beyond the very narrow, okay, very narrow insights or uh, assessments that we see in existing theoretical circles. Yeah. And that's also why, despite John Rawls' admirable, let's talk about well-ordered societies where people care about justice, institutions reflect the conceptions of justice, and both the people and the governors at large accept this this set of stipulations. I want to take the world beyond that narrowly defined or less narrowly defined, in this case, circle and say, what about the rest of the world? What about the 60% of people that live on planet Earth that don't reside in these societies can be lumped into well-ordered, or within that democratic and liberal democratic societies, And that ties me on to the final motivation. To me, theorization is always personal. Theorization is always about thinking about who I am and my situation and my situatedness and positionality and asking, how can I make sense of who I am and make sense of the world through who I am, make sense of who I am through the world? So that's an active and constantly interpolated dialogue between the self and the world, between me and them, between I and others at large. And these are the three reasons why I fundamentally was drawn to this topic. I therefore opted to to embark upon a PhD. I'm now in the final stages of wrapping up the D film. Yay. What can I say to those of you who are thinking about a PhD high audience members. beyond saying, don't do it. (laughs) Do it. Do it if you think you're looking for an opportunity to really push yourself to the frontier of human possibility. No, I'm just kidding. But if you want to stretch yourself, you want to push yourself beyond your comfort zone. And most importantly, if you want to prove to the world that you are capable of being original, innovative, and in command and in control of a domain of knowledge, doing a PhD is amongst the, probably the best ways of doing so, of demonstrating you possess the potency and capabilities in that regard. But I also don't want you to walk away thinking well, i have to do a phd i have not do a phd i'm a failure no this is only one means amongst many and there are many types of people out there by the way for him this is not a means for the best path or the only path or the ideal path this is only one means out of many for us who want to demonstrate to the world that we are original thinkers i've known many an original thinker that did not do for the phd or, or indeed a masters i've also known many a phd holder is anything but original. I mean, they're as original as you know, a pack of trips, which is not very original unless you're living in Britain, where each and every value of trips in terms of the, the, the volume of air in, them, really does strike <laughs> you as a really, yes, they really scam you. So what I want to highlight here is that doing a PhD is truly an ordeal. It is an arduous journey. It's not straightforward, not easy. There's no easy PhD unless you're talking about one of those degree mills, in which case, I mean, yes, I guess you get 10 PhDs. You know, me gusta, right, classic me. But short of that, you know, if you genuinely see yourself as having the energy, financial resources and occupational need and professional desire and to pursue an, an intellectual exercise as strenuous as that, and all you ask yourself really is, do I really want it? I, I can't make up your mind for you, but I would say you should want to you could want to and you can succeed, you know, so, so that's, I guess, my, my answer to your PhD question, uh, if that makes sense.
1: It does. Thank you. Thanks very much. And um, we asked this of all our guests, especially those who are pursuing a wide range of multimodal careers. What does a day in your life look like? How do you manage your energy or how do you manage your time? Um, When do you write? Give us a flavor of your day, your week, your month. And what, if anything, would you like to share with other people who might wanna pursue multiple career paths?
0: I sleep around six hours a day. I wake about seven or so, go for a job, go for, or swim depending on the season. And then at 8 o'clock, I start my work day so I usually put in four to five hours of solid work, writing, research, thinking, reading, very academic work. That takes me all the way up until... Midday, at which point I would have around you know, six to seven appointments, starting with a lunch appointment, and then around five to six coffees in the afternoon, timed um, not not perfectly well, but broadly to time to ensure that I can maximise the number of folks I interact with and talk with, and have five to six meetings or, or seven, taking me up until mid afternoon, at which point I would resume working again. Whether it be on academic or non-academic consultancy work, that depends on entirely the, you know, the demands and specifications of the task at hand and also my workload and what I'm trying to juggle. And at around 7:30 to 8, I would then go to dinner. Um, again, whether it be in an appointment or just dinner with myself, depends on the exact circumstances, it varies. But then you know, at around nine to 10, that's when my energy levels start dropping slightly. So I'd go back and do something very exciting. I would start reading. About- I'd spent two hours reading from 10 to 12, usually. So I know i previously said in an interview that I did it from 12 to two, but I'd recently changed my routine just to maximize you know, the, the excitement in my life and the spice of my life. And then you know, at midnight, I'd then spend another hour also wrapping up and tidying up loose ends in my work schedule and also my work uh, progress, maybe you know, dispatch emails, clear emails, touch base with friends and also colleagues. And at one o'clock, I'd head off to bed so that's basically a typical routine for me each and every week uh, for Monday to Saturday. And I nominally, and normally really, and nominally in, in the worst months really than uh, take, take Sundays. So that's my work routine. Now, now I'm conscious that, you know, I often get asked this question, how, what advice do I give to folks? And I'm conscious that I tend to say things along the lines of saying, oh, I can't give you good advice, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'm going to try something new today because, you know, why not, right? Innovation my advice to those who want to pursue multiple careers at once is this you're not superman you're not superwoman you're not super whatever you are you are human you know christina perry wrote a song human where she said i'm only human and i crashed and i fall down and this is true and what does that mean that means therefore you know you've got to strategize and optimize your careers must have complementarity. Sure, you want to diversify. Sure, you want to maximize spread to some reasonable extent, but you can't afford, and you simply will not succeed if your multiple careers are so disjointed from one another that, I don't know, you're bouncing from being a, uh, an engineer to becoming a top dog lawyer in the, same, in the same day. I mean, you could try. You could aspire towards it. I'm sure there's some very brilliant folks to do that, but I would never, ever recommend that. Why? Because it's far too cognitively draining. And if you take me as an example, I'm a writer, I'm a consultant, I am also an academic. But these jobs have more in common than people often think they do. And I've pointed out some of these underlying commonalities already just think, No one, very few folks, could do literally the most disjointed of things uh, in, in multiples of three and still do them well. So be realistic. Be a slash ashore. Be a polymath if you'd like to, if you aspire towards becoming one. Be someone who embraces multiple careers and pursues that to their own benefit and to the benefit of the world. Great. But remember, please remember, you need to be kind to yourself. You know, I was watching everything everywhere all at once, and there was this phrase, be kind. Right? Because Alpha Wayman, or Wayman didn't know what was going on, so he said, he said, be kind. Right. I know we all have our frustrations, but let's try and be kind to one another, like I am to Tan May, or Tan May not. So hi Tan May. Okay, never mind. I like how there are people dropping in and out. It's a bit like you know Marvel multiverse and Marvel universe. We keep seeing these characters die and drop off, and then the new characters coming in are are, are slightly worse. But anyway, that that's a, a cycle. So I hope that makes sense. Oh, it does.
1: Uh, it, it was. Um... It's it's really important i i also tell people who ask me uh, to manage your energy and be really explore complementarities um also speaking with people i noticed uh, just like you i also derive a lot of ideas insights debates and discussions with people like you know we chat you and i in oxford and often have those conversations so having that tribe of friends that you love to collaborate with discuss with is also something uh, super useful Brian, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't or any final uh, bit of uh, advice or anything that you'd like to share with us?
0: I I was hoping you'd ask me, actually, do you have any question for me, Brian? And I could sorely say, no, I thought you did a spectacular job. But if you were truly to ask me that question now, I would say, yes, I do have one question for you. So may I ask you that question? Yes, let's do it. What has been your favourite episode? of this podcast series so far
1: uh, on on network capital the podcast, uh, you know i uh, let me tell you privately but i'll tell you some that i've enjoyed very much hosting um i have enjoyed hosting the former pepsi ceo Indra Nui tremendously i have uh, uh, enjoyed hosting and uh, learned a ton from dr who you also hosted on uh, oxford political review and uh, there are, you know, like literally every single person we in we invite on this particular episode does one or two things the absolute best in the world. And we invite young professionals such as yourself, senior executives, and in their peer group, according to my judgment and that of my team, um, they're at absolutely the top of the game, including yourself, prime. You know, we've uh, we've been talking about it for a while, so in. In what you do, I think you're, you're, you've are you built your category of one.
0: Thank you so much for that. And I, I really like your answer there in case I haven't made it clear. So thank you all for tuning in. And uh, that's it from me. Thank you, Brian. Thanks very much.